everyone, this is Leanna. I just wanted to pop in and let you all know that the podcast is back. I'm so excited to be doing a lot more with it. So there's a lot of great stuff on the way, but I wanted to give a quick thank you to everyone who's been supportive in the months of this hiatus. Everyone who said, you know, when's the podcast coming back? When are we having another episode? All that. It's been really heartwarming to see that so many people actually care about it. So I am happy to know that we are back. And this episode has actually been recorded months ago. So this was recorded in January, but I did not have the time to edit. And then I was a little worried about posting it just because the sound quality is really bad. I was traveling when I recorded this episode. We were in like a really echoey room and we had to cut out a lot of like dog barking and there was a grandfather clock that kept going off. It was kind of a mess, but at the same time, it was really wonderful. And so ultimately I decided I did really want to share this episode with you guys because I got to record it with one of my best friends, Daphnis, and she has always been just the biggest supporter of anything I've ever done. So recording with her was a dream come true because I got to hang out with a friend of mine and we got to just reconnect over literature and really that's what this podcast is all about. So I didn't want to keep that from you guys so without further ado here is our episode on Jane Eyre. everyone and welcome back to Top Shelf Lit. I'm your host Leanna Spear and this is the podcast where I talk about books with my friends. Today Top Shelf Lit is on the road so this is not our usual setup um, but we're making do and it's awesome because I came all the way to Nebraska to hang out and record with my dear dear friend Daphne. <laughs> <laughs> so Daphne, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited that we finally get to record together because I feel like it's been a long time coming. Yeah. You were one of the first people when I started the show that reached out and you're like, I want to do an episode. And you've been awesome and like a faithful follower and Mm -hmm. listening to all the shows and giving me suggestions, which is great. Yeah. um, I I think my, when you said, oh, I want to, when I saw you wanted to do this to me, which is kind of like, okay, she's pursuing a passion. And I just want to be there to support. I, I think because the feeling, the la- I remember one of the last um, feelings that I, I left when we graduated from Mercy was yeah. um, you went to our theater director and said, she has to do this by herself. I don't, like, she has to do this solo uh, at a theater conference that we were doing in Lincoln. So I remember just like, okay, she supported me when I, I wanted to do it. So here I am to support Leanna and everything. So. <laughs> That's right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. <laughs> That's crazy yeah. to think about. Yeah, so so for people who don't know, which is most of you, <laughs> Daphne and I met in high school, which you are the second person from high school to be on my show because I had Emily, Emily on. Yeah. yeah, Emily was on. We talked about Catcher in the Rye. Um, but you were the first friend I made. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> you were my best friend in high school. Like, we... I transferred into this all-girls high school when I, it was our junior year, Yeah. and one of the biggest things that influenced my life was I, you helped me get into theater, mm. 
because I like our high school take took theater very seriously, very very seriously. seriously. (laughs) It wasn't just you know little backyard plays. We were hardcore about it. Our director was really hardcore about it. Yeah. Yeah. Very. I mean, they were great though. It was an awesome experience. Mm -hmm. But so even though I started school at the normal time in the beginning of the school year I think you guys did auditions and started the play like during the summertime like that's the commitment for the theater kids of that high school so there were no parts to be given out or anything like that it was all done and Daphne like introduced me to the director because I said I was interested we were in the acting class together and you like went over to her and you were like, is there anything she can do? Can she do crew? She Can she do like something? Like we got to get her in. And I think it was, it was She Loves Me was the show. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we were doing She Loves Me. And it, um, I started during tech week. Yeah, I think I, I don't remember having that conversation with the director, but I remember it was like very close towards the end yeah. that you started being around because you were like, oh, I love theater. I think it's great. And I remember I heard you sing at some point and I was like, she needs to sing too. Oh, that's <laughs> she needs so to sweet. be here. So like, I really wanted to be part of it. So yeah. <laughs> you helped me out and <laughs> you you got me into theater. I mean, I was into theater already, but you helped me get into the show. Into and the show. Yeah, so I could start right away. There was a lot of people who were like, who is this girl all of a sudden? (laughs) And I think the job they gave me was they put me in charge of our leading lady. Um, (laughs) Was it Megan? It was Megan. Megan will be on the podcast too, which is great. But so they put me in charge of her quick changes because she had a lot for that show. And she was like, I don't know who you are. Like... (laughs) we've never met and you weren't here throughout any of the rehearsals like all of a sudden here we are like the week before the show starts and I'm just changing her yeah it was great it was a great experience it was and and I think that theater family was really welcoming so that's why I was like I I remember you were telling me like hey I transferred and I've moved a lot and I've had that experience too so it was just very sweet to like be able to have you and I was like I I know how how moving around in the middle of school year feels like let's make her feel part of of the school this is a great idea yeah I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't joined theater and I would have eventually but you helped me get like <laughs> right away move out this You're is like, Liana. she's coming in <laughs> You're like, this, this is where she belongs and I definitely did oh, so, good. <laughs> so this is all very topical actually because um you decided that you wanted to talk about Jane Eyre on the podcast I had put a post out very early on and I was like, hey, if anyone wants to do an episode or, or wants to suggest books, and you commented, you were like, I want to do, um, what did you say? Something. Jane Eyre, 1984. 1984. Yes. And uh, two of my brothers had already claimed. <laughs> my brother Dan claimed 1984. It's one of his favorite books. And my brother Joe claimed Fahrenheit 451. It's one of his favorite books. But of course, they're also teenage boys so like it's been really hard to actually get them to do anything <laughs> yeah because to them it kind of sounds like homework yeah. <laughs> so, so that's why I was like okay those two are claimed but let's do Jane Eyre for sure and all of that was perfect because we read them in high school were you okay were we in the same section no I think you were you were in advanced English yeah um, I did honors, honors junior honors, year and yeah. AP in uh Senior year, I, yeah. I was trying to say. Um, and I, when I arrived to Mercy, um, I arrived from Mexico, so I was not able to move up to honors or anything because mm-hmm. they wanted to keep me at a level that 
makes sense. I could understand at that point when I had just moved in. Right. Um, so I read this in regular lit class. Um, when Emily was on the show and we talked about Catching the Rye, we weren't in the same section either. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been helpful to be with someone in the class. I think, well, I think you guys just went a little bit faster the books. I think you guys had more books to read yeah. than we did. I think we just read more than you guys did because yeah. we, we just had to go faster. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the reason why I liked, I loved Jane Eyre is because I could identify with her to a certain extent. Um, overall, she doesn't fit in. That's one mm-hmm. of the biggest themes, you know, she doesn't fit in. And she's always constantly looking for that approval without compromising her integrity, essentially. Right. Um, Which is why it's so great for young women to read in high school. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, uh, like my listeners, you guys will have to tell me if you read this in high school or if it's something that we read because it was an all-girls school. I think so because I've, I had talked with someone that went to an all-boys school and they said they didn't read that, you know. Yeah, typical. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> but I talked with someone that, that went into a collect school and they didn't talk about it. They knew about the play, but they never wow. read it. Yeah. I wonder if it is because we're all girls. Probably, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's so good. So, um, before we... we talk about the yeah, I was, I was just going to say that before we get into it. Okay, so our theme drink for the night. I went through so many different options when I was researching and trying to get ready for the show. And there was one cocktail called a Gin Air. And so I thought about doing that one. <laughs> But everything got so crazy, and I forgot to, like, bring any of that stuff with me, and it was complicated. But there was also another one I wanted to try, and it was, like, um, pomegranate juice, lemon juice, like, bitter, simple syrup, but it was also, like, an egg white, and, like, you need a cocktail shaker, and, like, it was a full cocktail thing. Uh-huh. But it was inspired by the Red Room from the book, uh-huh. and that was one of the things from the story, like the metaphor from the story that stuck out most to me and what I always associate with Jane Eyre is uh, the imagery of the Red Room, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So when five minutes ago I was like, (laughs) I need to get a drink, (laughs) I had that recipe in mind, but I was like, what is in the area? There's a Walgreens like right by here. I went to that Walgreens because I know Walgreens has alcohol, but like they don't have, it's not a liquor store. They don't have a big selection, but it, the original recipe I was looking at, it was like pomegranate juice, sparkling wine, uh, lemon juice, bitters, and simple syrup, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I happened to find these like spritzers, which are pomegranate sparkling wine. So I was like, that's half of it already, <laughs> which is perfect. And um, they didn't have any, like, lemon juice or, like, any of that other stuff. So I got some cranberry juice to go with it to give it a little bit more of a – to make it more bitter and mm-hmm. also to water it down a little bit so I can drive home later. Yeah. And it's also red. No. So it works It's pretty good. And it is really red, which is what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I just wanted it to look really red so that we can feel – like Jane Eyre in the Red Room and yeah. chain all that. Yeah. So it's good. I like this, it. This is a little bit more enjoyable than the actual Red Room, for sure. <laughs> I'd hope so. <laughs> anyway, that's what we were drinking. It is a Red Room-inspired pomegranate cranberry spritzer for Jane Eyre. Yeah. So, uh, like we said, we ta- we read this in high school, and then what... It- 
other experiences do you have with the book? Have you read it since then? Have you watched any of the film adaptions? Um, I had read it once after, um, and then I kind of skipped through it when I was trying to remember yeah. a lot of the plot for this. Um, but I also read, I also watched the two movie adaptations. Both of them were on Netflix at some point. Yes. Um, the one that we happened to watch at school, which is from like 2000 early. Yeah. Um, that one's my favorite. I think yes. Jane Eyre has, in that movie is so beautifully put together. Whereas in the one that came out in like 2013 actually is when it actually came out. That's um, when we graduated high yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think it yeah. was, or it came out like 2012 or something, you yeah. know, around that time. That one I did not enjoy as much. I think it missed a lot of the plot. I think they were trying to do it very quickly. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and it's one of those movies that when people say, oh, I love watching Pride and Prejudice every once in a while, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's watch Jane Eyre instead. Like, yes. that's my movie. I love watching Jane Eyre. I've seen the movie, the one you were talking about, like the earlier 2000s one. Mm-hmm. I've seen that one probably four times at least. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I really, really like it. Yeah. Uh. What do you think are some of the big differences between the movies, between those two movies, and then also between the movies and the book? Um, I think, so obviously the book is always going to be a lot more in-depth, especially with Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre, yeah. we were talking about it, you know, off of... Um, yeah, before we recorded. Um, I have a copy of it that has, you know, it's like a good three inches Yeah, it's, I'd say three inches. We're looking at it right now. Yeah, it's it's like giant and beautiful. And it's red. Look, I didn't notice that. It's yeah. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Like, the, the edges of the pages are red. Like, some of those old Bibles have, like, the color. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like a Bible. And I'm sure it's, like, a 12-point font, which probably makes it so big. But it's it's really, you know, it's, like, two inches thick. Um, yeah. Just, like, just the spine is Yeah. It's, it, it's I mean, gorgeous. It's beautiful. But, again, I think with the movie, especially the – it's 2011, by the way. Okay. Um, I feel like that one just skipped through so many important bits. Mm-hmm. I think they especially – skips through a lot of the childhood things yes um on that new one which is so important to the plot further down because halfway through the book you know you have that interaction with with the family again right um it's such a it's a it's a part that really characterizes her and the rest of her life yes so okay so it's important to note this story came out and it was originally called Jane Eyre, an autobiography. Mm-hmm. But then it was also written, it's by Charlotte Bronte, as we now know, and most covers will say Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. But the original edition said Jane Eyre, autobiography, and the author was Cure Bell, which was Charlotte's pen name at the time. So it's really funny because it says an autobiography, but it has a man's name. Mm-hmm. So... It, you're dealing with something that's supposed to sound like an autobiography, but is clearly not and is clearly fiction. Yeah. And it, I feel like so many books have done that since then. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of things that do that. They'll act like it's an autobiography or a, or a memoir or something like that, but um, it's all fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one thing I really liked about the novel is how personal it is. Yeah. And... and I think it's something we take for granted in a lot of modern literature. Mm-hmm. Everything is done kind of stream of consciousness or everything mm-hmm. is done from that very personal, vulnerable nature. Um, but 
here we have like for the first time what's supposed to be like this autobiography of just a normal woman in her life. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I always thought it was cool because I for, I don't think I learned that in school or maybe we did, but I didn't care. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like one of those things that we would talk about like, oh yeah, it's from the first point of view, mixed, you know, it, it didn't, I don't think that she ever told us, oh, this is a very personal novel. I think one of the things I really liked was reading it and finding almost to me that she was like my friend, like I knew her mm-hmm. through everything that was happening. Um, like you said, it, it's very personal. It takes you, it, it, she does a good job at um, kind of really, the emotions that she's feeling, yes. really communicating those. So, okay, would you say that Jane Eyre, her character and her personality, is she one of those heroines who's kind of like a blank canvas so that you can project yourself onto or is she somebody who because at the same time it feels so personal she has to be like this really well-developed three-dimensional character I can never tell like myself and I'm biased too because like I said I I connected with her for different reasons I did not have very many friends I was bullied in school when I was Mm -hmm. younger so but you know me kind of walking through her life was like I I feel you like I, yeah I am you and you're like um so it just it's I'm biased to say that it's the you know what we're talking about it's just I'm, I'm just biased I feel right because like, you really relate to her but it feels like every woman does yes and yet when you're reading it you feel like you are the only one who relates to her yes which is why I really want to talk about this book with you um, because we read it in a high school setting, mm-hmm. um, and obviously our perspective is a little bit different yes. from what everyone everyone else reading, you know, listening might have read it in a different setting, or may have not read it at all. Right. I, I feel like Jane Eyre is one of those books that everyone knows about, like it's a classic, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, like I asked my husband, I was like, do you even know what Jane Eyre is? And he was like, it's not one of those Jane Austen books. And I was like, no. (laughs) But there's a lot of people who kind of lump all of those, like, old classic female novels kind of all together. They're all always put under this, like, Victorian umbrella, which most of them aren't even written in Victorian times. And it's – most people don't even take the time to actually read them. Yeah. Um, I – and it's really funny to me because to me it's like Charlotte Bronte and what she's doing here is so completely different mm-hmm. than the worlds that Jane Austen concerns herself with. So I think it's really funny that people like to mix them all up and they don't understand like the Bronte sisters and how great they all were. Well, tell me how you feel because part of me feels like it's a well-known, I don't know how, what other word to use, but like indie classic. Yeah. Like, it's not, like, it's a classic, but not very people know about it, so it's gonna, you know. That's how I felt about Emma, which we talked about on this mm-hmm. podcast. Like, everyone talks about Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, and I had a lot of friends who loved Emma, but it was kind of like an indie classic that only, like, true fans know about, and yeah, they think like it's really cool. cool. The cool people read Emma. Uh <laughs> But it hadn't really occurred to me until right now because, for me, it was part of my education. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, doesn't everybody know Jane Eyre? You know when I realized when I was walking around the library at my college mm-hmm. um, and I walked 
walked by and there were like five copies of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And there were like two. There's always like a billion copies of Pride and Prejudice, which it's great, to be fair. Yeah. I do like Pride and Prejudice, as it's I've said. It's, we're not bashing on I love Pride and Prejudice, but there's there's more. Um, It does seem, I, I know, I think a lot of homeschooled people that I know, people who homeschooled read it, a lot of girls read it, well, if they were homeschooled, but it doesn't seem to be something that's in the mainstream curriculum. Mm-hmm. But I, I do agree, she is kind of a, a, a blank canvas in a way. Um, because she is described as a plain Jane in, in the novel, through the novel. Yes, yes. As well, far well, as, like, her... Her plain Jane, sorry. <laughs> her, like, outward appearance is definitely very blank in that way. Um, she's a plain Jane. She's not anything special. She's... But it's also kind of part of what's forced upon her as far as, like, she's supposed to be that way. Yes. And that's something that she's fighting with, which is... I, kind of what makes her not as blank of a character and makes her more well-rounded. If you're really paying attention to the novel and what's going on in between the lines and what's going on with her emotions Mm -hmm. versus her actions. Yes. And I think that's one of the big reasons why reading the book is so much better than watching the films. Yes. Because even if you have a really great actress who's able to portray some of that, it's hard because... Part of her character is that she's very, like, reserved on the outside and very quiet. So, like, you have to portray that while also trying to portray all of the emotional turmoil she's going through. Yeah. I feel like one of the one of the things when you're reading a book, you're like, oh, I can... This can be very easily translated into a book because it's so visual. Mm-hmm. But Jane Eyre is so emotional and meditative to his, you know, in Jane Eyre's consciousness yes how we were being told a story that you know I, you would miss so much more if you're watching the film yes and this book does a lot as well as far as her like emotion especially with like her passion and stuff which is something she's told as a woman she's not supposed to have mm-hmm. a lot of it is done metaphorically mm-hmm. so it's not even her just saying those things although every once in a while she'll have like a moment but <laughs> a lot of it's metaphorical like with the Red Room, which we referred to earlier, there's so much... Well, first of all, I'd love to hear your opinion on what you believe the Red Room symbolizes, because I've heard a lot of different things, and I have my own opinions. So let me ask you first, like, what do you think all of that is? Which happens very early in the novel, because yes. the novel is broken up into three stages. It's her early childhood, her school years, and then her life as a governess. Yes. Um... So I think to talk about that, we do, so we do to talk about a little bit, um, she does not have parents. Yes. She is living with her aunt mm-hmm. and her three cousins. Um, her aunt is very rich. That's why she has this like beautiful, it's beautifully described when I read it a couple of weeks ago. It's such a beautiful description of the, of the red room. Um, the color, mm-hmm. the depth of what that room yes. colored. Yes, and that I think that's why it sticks with me so much. It's yeah. so descriptive, and I don't think any film has captured it ever. I don't think so either. Um, but um, with that, is she a black, blank canvas? She has a temper. You can kind of see it. Not temper. She has a, a it's not an attitude. Like a either. fire in she her, has a though. Fire, yeah. yeah. Um, you see it when she's young. You see it a lot when she's young because you have this. Um, older cousin, and I forgot his name, um, but he is very mean to her, mm-hmm. physically abusive, like, 
pushes her, and then the aunt gets mad at Jane for starting the fight. Yes. Which is not what happened. Um, it's the typical, well, what we now think of as, like, typical stepmother-type situation, but it's her aunt, and then she's got these cousins who are basically, like, the evil stepsisters. Horrible kids, honestly. Yeah, yeah, and there's... John and Georgina. Yes, yes, and uh, Jane Eyre, because she's not, she was taken in by the uncle, and it wasn't really the aunt's idea. Mm-hmm. But it was the uncle's dying wish that she be taken care of, and that's why the aunt has to take care of her. Yeah. Um, but and they has like she very much treats her so much less, and I think to a point she instructs the servants to treat her as less. At some point, yes. one of the of the maids that you are less than a servant because you don't earn your stay. Right. They treat her so badly. Um, in the red room, like Leanne said, you know the, the uncle died. Yes. Nine years prior to the novel starting, and it was his dying wish to keep um, her. This is a room that since, if I remember correctly, since uh, Mr. Reed died, it's not been used. Right. And it's a cold, dark room full of red where someone died, and it's a little child that's terrifying already. Yes. Um, I think, honestly, from the very beginning, it's her struggles, her own self, her fears, what she has to overcome because she's there for so long. She is so afraid that I honestly think the second time I read it, it's almost like a panic attack. She had yeah. a shock and a panic attack. Right, right. It's <laughs> it's cool because I think that's the part where we first get into this very uh, Bronte-esque symbolism where she likes to bring in the gothic a little bit mm-hmm. and we get some of those dark Im- that dark imagery and uh yeah it was where somebody died and it's described as like very very red and it's like everything is red the walls are red the carpet is red the drapes are red like everything the bedding is red yes I think even to the point to a certain point the wood looks red because everything is yes so red. like the wood has like this reddish tint i think the one of the movies like the more recent one that came out it's like she gets locked in this room that has like some red curtains and i was like that is yeah. not gonna cut it <laughs> like it's not even close yeah um What's interesting is when I was in college, this book was brought up in a, well, it was a literary theory class mm-hmm. and we were studying um, feminist theory, it came up, and when we were studying LGBTQ theory, it came up. Um, there's a lot of really cool lesbian interpretations and like re- lesbian readings of this book that are really interesting, but I'm, I don't know well enough to fully talk about, but it's something you, you can look into and research. It's so cool. Um, but one of the things we talked about in the feminist reading of Jane Eyre is the symbolism of the red room and how it's, it, <laughs> this is like one of those like really crazy ones, but it's fun to think about. <laughs> So it can symbolize literally, like, womanhood. So it's almost, like, kind of graphic. But it's like she was being locked within her own womanhood, being locked within, like, a uterus, essentially, or, like, a womb, like the womb room. And that's where she's put away when she's being too passionate, when she's being, like, too emotional. And then she gets locked in, like, this red room that symbolizes, like, that rage or that fire, that passion, the emotion and that's like what kind of changes her into that more subdued Jane that we see for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. I like the interpretation. 
situation. Isn't that kind of cool? That is really cool because if you think about it, the first thing you see from her is a very passionate, joyful, honestly, child. She's well, the, the, after that day, she goes in shock for I think a full day, mm-hmm. and when she wakes up, she kind of just goes up to her and and says, "I have no love for you. I will never have any love for you." Like she is very cold after that. Yeah. It's like a little birthing experience, I guess is what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like it's like a rebirth of mm-hmm. no emotion. It's for a child to have that young. It is. It's very traumatic. And it's it's another thing where, like, you can try and explain it. Like, yeah, she had to grow up with her aunt and her cousins, and they weren't very nice to her. And there's so many people who go through that. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't necessarily understand that being a traumatic experience. Like, yeah, life is hard. Some people don't have, like, that perfect nuclear family setting. Mm-hmm. But then when you're reading it and you're going through it as she is and you see the kind of emotional abuse and physical abuse that's really happening and the psychological trauma that's taking place, mm-hmm. that's when it really hits you how much that's going to affect a person. Yeah. I would really like that interpretation. Thank you. That's actually really nice. I just thought yeah. it was like... Oh, this is her struggles, because at some point halfway through the novel, I think she remembers the red room when she's having a hard time. Yeah. And in my head, it was just like, oh, it's her struggles, it's her insecurities, her, not necessarily shame, but the feeling of that first, like, oh, shoot, I'm getting cast, you know, chastised right. for something I didn't do. It'd be interesting to go back to, because I, I don't know what part you're talking about, where she remembers the red room, and see if the interpretation can still fit that part of the novel where she's rethinking about it and if it can still have all those uh, implications of womanhood and kind of the repression of womanhood. Mm-hmm. Especially that repression bit because you were, from my understanding, I haven't taken many history courses, mm-hmm. but from my understanding, you are supposed to be in the setting kind of calm. Yes. Not very passionate. You kind of have to be, like you said, a blank canvas. You don't, you're a refined woman. <laughs> right, right. Very, like, reserved, I reserved. guess. Um, so, and that is a lesson that she continues to learn when she goes, we go into the next part of the novel, um, through her schooling years. So she's sent away to this boarding school. It's all girls, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's all girls. Yeah, so it's a boarding school, and there she's also treated terribly. She is mocked, um, by students and professors alike. Yeah. Um, public humiliation. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to remember the line where she says, "What would you like to? Would you like to go to heaven or earth?" Child is like, "I would go. To, I would like to go to hell or something." I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she is. She's the firecracker. She meets um her best friend Helen there, who is Helen's a redhead, isn't she? Yeah, she's a she's a redhead with curly, like very nice curly hair. Oh, it's like what everybody always wanted when they were kids. Like I always wanted red curly hair. <laughs> Um, (laughs) and she's a firecracker, like you said, and again, you see that use of red being that, like, passionate, fiery kind of, uh, motif continuing forward, and Helen really influences Jane. (laughs) It's interesting, because it's like, Jane had all of that to begin with, but it was kind of taken out of her, um, by her upbringing with her aunt, um, and then you have Helen, who's somebody who kind of refuses to be subdued. Yes. However, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, no person was going to subdue her, but Helen does die, 
Which uh, that whole scene is the thing that I saw a lot in the lesbian interpretations of Jane Eyre. Um, Because you have this very beautiful scene with her and Helen in the bed together when Helen dies. And, and I think to clarify, she's still very much a child. I think that she cannot be older than 10. Yes, they're very young. Happens. They're very young. Um, it's it's a beautiful scene. It's very heartbreaking. It is. It, I mean, I can't imagine being young and having my best friend die, let alone die in my arms. Exactly, yeah. You know? It's crazy and uh, there's a lot it, it, the way it's written is so beautiful and it, there's a lot of like caressing of her red hair and like well her red, her red hair was gone <gasps> that's right her hair disappeared yeah so they uh, like you said Helen was a firecracker and um Jane Eyre got punished for something oh she, she didn't wash her hands or something that the water was frozen over mm-hmm. um and the awful lady that was taking care of them um said, oh, why don't you wash your hair? He's like, oh, it's too cold. And that guy, Mr. Blockhurst? Mm-hmm, that sounds familiar. Blockhurst or something. Um, he says, okay, well, you know, your hair is pride. It's, um, so I'm going to cut it. And then Helen stands next to her, and both of them get their hair cut, like, very shaved. You can see it in the, in the, night, like, two thousand. 2005 movie, mm-hmm. you can see how short it gets. Like, they really go at it with the scissors. Yeah. So she she dies without her hair. And I think her hair was supposed to represent that fire in her soul. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, very accurate. So, what do you think the purpose of introducing in a character like Helen, who you think is, is she's a very important character, but she's really not a long, around very long during the novel. So what do you think the purpose is to introduce a character and then kill her off like that um when we meet jane Eyre, she is truly alone um she needs somebody and i think that shows her how she should be treated because mm-hmm. she finally has someone that cares about her and is willing to sacrifice you know her hair to stand in solidarity with her so i think it's she's a character that shows her from that moment forward i will not be treated any less than how this person showed me how to be loved. Mm. So that's that was my interpretation, killing her off. Because then you, you you see Jane Eyre really remember her throughout the rest of her life. Yes. Um, and it's in those moments when she's like, do I, like, I want to be treated better. Right. Right, that makes sense. It's, it's so interesting how the, the novel, like we said, is cut into these three parts. And yet, most people really focus on the last third. It's because it's the romance. The romance. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I was going to say. And movies always focus on the last third. They drag that whole thing out and don't focus at all on her early childhood or her schooling years. Like you had said earlier, that's one of the big problems with the movie, with all of the adaptions, really. Which is understandable because you have a time constraint. Mm -hmm. But it's... I don't know. I, I guess that happens when you see a movie of anyone's life. Yeah. They tend to focus on, like, whatever you achieved in your adulthood and less on what brought you there. But what made you, you know, the circumstances that happened in your childhood that make you who you are are so impactful. Like, you, there would be no context to the rest of the story without it. And 
I this book would not be complete without those first two parts, especially with it being called an autobiography in that way of it showing somebody's like full life. A lot of times this is called a building's romance. Like it's one of those coming of age stories, but it, it spans like her. It, it, it doesn't span her entire lifetime. Actually. It actually just goes up until Twenty-five, so like our age. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, I'm not. <laughs> that's it. That's the end of our lives. Like nothing important happens after this. Well, yeah, I think it must be like mid twenties because once we get to the next bit, you know, you have Mr. Rochester who is in his forties, and they mention a lot the yeah. age difference between them. There's a big age difference. A 10, 15 age difference. So she must be either in her late twenties. Or very early 30s. Yes. And so I know she goes through that school, and then when she's old enough to graduate, she becomes a teacher there. Yep. And she just teaches there for a few years, and then she gets kind of fed up with it and just decides to leave because she wants some new experiences. I think the next time we see her, and when, when we see her the first time as an adult, I think one of her students died, or she was looking at someone's grave at that point. It was. Maybe she was just. Was it the the other teacher who was nice to her? What was her name? There was one teacher who was nice to her. Like, uh, she's like the Mrs. Honey character in Matilda, sort of like the one Mm -hmm. nice teacher who shows some compassion. And I can't imagine being sent off to a boarding school that you hate, but hating and knowing you're not welcome at your own family's house so much that you choose to be employed at this place that you hate. And I think she said that somewhere. It's like, everyone else went back for holidays, and I stayed here the whole time. That's why this teacher became my friend. Right, right. So she had this one teacher who showed her compassion, and I think it's that's the teacher who dies. And then that's when Jane decides she needs to leave the school, and she can't handle being there anymore. So she becomes a governess. Which is interesting because it's like kind of her going off to do her own thing finally, like becoming an adult in that way, like embarking on something new, starting a new career. And it's the kind of thing that all of us are going through right now in our lives. And yet at that time, it's something as simple as like being a governess, which I mean, I worked as a nanny for uh like two years off and on. So that's an experience that I understand as well, where you're taking care of a child someone else's child and educating them at the same time because mm-hmm. uh, I have a background in education as well so I was able to bring it all together and be a governess which I hadn't I almost said I hadn't thought about in high school because obviously I hadn't done it yet <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's something else that brings me closer to that character um, but it's something that I think modern readers would not expect to be like a big career move. And, I mean, when you think about it, women didn't really work at that time. Being a governess was, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the very, very few, maybe like two or three things that would allow you to be quote-unquote independent. Right. Because you are living at someone else's home, teaching your kids, and kind of doing your own thing on your free time. Right. Otherwise, you would be a housewife doing housework. Yeah. And, right, so... (laughs) It was kind of her one chance, and it. But it's kind of funny because it's like, as far as 
our modern goals of like you need to go out and start a career and like meet people and all of that like she's literally going to be in this one house with these few people yeah for the foreseeable future and hopefully you know meeting someone along the way meeting someone along the way like i don't know if the thing with jane is that wasn't necessarily her intention no which uh i think gets glossed over but for someone in her position during her time, you'd think she would want to get married as soon as possible because she needs some sort of stability. She needs some sort of family life. She needs somebody, and even just like emotionally, it would be nice for her to have somebody who loves her. So you'd think she'd be like this desperate boy crazy girl. Yeah, like me when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> you were really boy crazy in high school. Um, but it's really interesting that you say, you know, there's this, I don't think she was, um, she was not, she wanted to be careful, just like everyone else does. Yes. But she was never really like, I'm going to look, I'm going to go and look for a husband. She was very much about being independent, but still being, you know, loving herself and being loved the right way. Yes. And then, you know, being fulfilled. I think one of the things that I really liked is she was trying to be fulfilled career-wise with being yes. governess. And at the same time, emotionally fulfilled, which we see towards the end of the novel with uh, St. John, he's not, she's not fulfilled emotionally. Right, right, right. She does have, it's stated very simply throughout the novel. It's not like a big declaration of like, I'm an independent woman, but she really does have those characteristics, even though she's this plain Jane, this boring, regular, reserved woman. But she really does have goals for herself mm-hmm. um, that don't revolve around just getting married. Yeah, which at that point, I think one of the reasons why I really liked that novel was because it just kind of shows you you can do much more than just get married and, you know, have a husband. Life is about so much more than that. In the time when I was very boy crazy to your ass, I had a boyfriend. I don't need a boyfriend. No one needs a boyfriend or a girlfriend to be happy. Let me tell you that. Daphne's, you were so boy crazy. <laughs> yes, we don't need to talk about it in depth. I'm just, it's, it's another. I think another one of the reasons why I really like the novel is because it really taught me you don't you don't need to be in a relationship to, to be fulfilled. She is fulfilled in a lot of different ways before she ends up, you know, happy. Yes, yes, and um, she has a lot of self-respect, yes. especially towards the end of the novel, and um, she makes a lot of decisions based off of that, where she chooses self-respect over what society might want her to do. Mm-hmm. Um, she chooses it over marriage, and then when she does want to get married, and then we have the big bomb dropped. Oh, yeah, that broke my heart. Because, <laughs> uh, like, marriage in this novel is a plot device. It is not, like, the end point. It's it's literally just a plot device, device to get her relationship with Rochester to the point it is at the end. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> I guess we should just go ahead and delve into that. Yeah, let's go back around. <laughs> we, we do this. We just kind of go, I feel it. I feel the drink that we have. The red room is a good drink. The red room. It's very toasty in the red room. Yes, it is. <laughs> but, I, I mean, we might as well get into it. To, towards the end, obviously, everyone knows where this is going. She moves in. She, Her and her, the master of the house, Mr. Rochester, slowly fall in love. And, um... 
throughout it we have all these great gothic themes going on with like creeks in the houses house and different like you know ghosts and things happening and noises at night and I love all of that stuff um we get to the point where they want to get married and then we have this big bomb dropped which I remember when reading the novel for the first time blew my mind Mm -hmm. like it's such a great surprise like it's such a great twist to the story for a story that I mean it's not like super it's a pretty linear story as far as like it's just following her along with her life and then she's supposed to get married right and Mm -hmm. then that's the whole thing but no so we have this big twist that is that Mr. Rochester well before do do we we want to talk about her relationship with Mr. Rochester because we kind of glossed over it's interesting because to me when we they first meet, mm-hmm. very cold. He's a very cold person. Yes, that's a good point. Very, very cold. Um, and he is very protective. He has this little niece, is it? Mm-hmm. No, it's his daughter. It's no. his... He's the guardian of he's her. Guardian. I don't think it's his daughter. I think it's his niece or something. I don't know. I think... Oh, you know what? I remember. So, he is taking care of his child. He fell in love with a French woman... And they were together for a while, and then at some point, this child was kind of dropped on him, said, this is your daughter. Oh, right, right. he doesn't believe it's his daughter, because he is described as having black hair, and the little girl has blonde curls. Yes. So she doesn't believe it's it's his. Um, But he's taking care of her, and that's why Danier moves into into the house. Yes. And throughout, there's this lady that is trying to, like, court him but mm-hmm. he doesn't really let her come really close and instead he kind of chooses to bring Jane Eyre into parties which is not they treat it like oh it's unheard of why would right. you bring in the governess right. to a fancy party yes where everyone is super dressed up um and the the hands thing our teacher used to be like the hands girl yes the hands. <laughs> there's a lot of like that they're very careful he's very careful on how he approaches Jane like mm-hmm. one of the ways that he does it is by like caressing her hand or like her back or her arm very smoothly yes but he's a very cold person so when he asks her to marry him she is very surprised and she is obviously heads over heels but this guy is still very much like serious yes yes and that's when we get the bomb dropped <laughs> Yes, well, and to go back to what we were saying earlier, it's crazy because you've got the the woman who's, like, chasing after Rochester, and like we said, Jane is not looking for that, and she's just being herself, going about her business, being a governess, and I think that's part of what's so appealing about her to Mr. Rochester. It's that, like, oh, I will pay attention to whoever doesn't pay attention to me kind of thing. Yeah, it definitely works for her. <laughs> definitely works for Jane that she's just minding her own business, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, he's got, like, these gold-digging ladies after him. Yeah, and I think one of the things is she, Jane Eyre, we said, she's kind of taught to not have a personality or not be reactive yes. to all of the things. And this other girl that's kind of fluttering around Mr. Rochester doesn't have a personality, really. She is yes. very one-dimensional, as we see her in the novel. Right. Um, but Miss Rochester does get to engage with Jane Eyre 
in her fiery side or like she tries to repress it a little bit right she has like a deeper real personality even though she appears very reserved and then you have that other character who as a foil to her is extremely (laughs) vibrant on the outside even like her clothing and like those her appearance and her personality very bubbly yeah she's kind of described as what i would consider an airhead yeah she's like one of those airhead ditzy uh, gold digging types. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they've, they've always existed. <laughs> yeah, I think she's described as a blonde, so I remember, you know, the first time we read it, someone made the comments like, oh, she's kind of a dumb blonde, and I'm like, you know, that's a horrible stereotype, don't say that. Not yeah. Cool. That's right, I think she is blonde, but, I mean, Jane, does Jane have brown hair? Yeah, she's, she has, so she's described as having long, straight brown hair. Mm-hmm. Um, very pale, kind of milk almost, mm-hmm. complexion, tall, slim, with a very oval face. Yes. And her eyes are also brown, which I identify with that because at the point I had brown, straight hair. Yeah. And I have brown eyes. I don't have the milky skin, but you know, it's... Like, yeah, you and I are both, like, we got brown hair, brown eyes, and <laughs> we do not have the, like, milky porcelain skin no. at all. <laughs> which, you know, but yeah, she's... She is very much the foil in physically and otherwise. I do think a, a modern criticism that I've seen of this book is the stereotypes that Charlie Bronte uses of women. She does have, like, the dumb blonde ditzy character, the plain Jane character. And then when we get into Bertha, Bertha is, like, a very... <laughs> <laughs> Mama bear kind of thing. Yes, and it's... Bertha is crazy, but she's also exotic. Oh, Bertha. I'm thinking of someone else. Who are you thinking of? <laughs> I'm thinking of when she goes over to St. John's house. Oh. And there's this, it's also a character that starts with a B, I think, and she's very motherly to Jane. Yes. The one who, like, it turns out they're all related and they're her cousins or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Bertha. No, so, yeah, we'll talk about Bertha. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but where were we? So I think we were around Bertha. Actually. So that brings us to the marriage and the Bertha bomb, as we will now call it. <laughs> so I'll let you take this one. No, I was just gonna say, why don't you? You're right. Okay, you're right. Unintentional. <laughs> so in a great dramatic scene. They, they do finally agree to get married, and they we have the wedding, and right as they're going on with the wedding, someone, I can't remember who it is, stands up and does the whole I object thing, and he says, uh, Mr. Rochester cannot be married, for he's already married. And did they bring Bertha for evidence? Or was, uh, Bertha escaped, didn't she? So, I think, so in the house, you have Mr. Rochester, uh, like the maid, the main maid yes. of the house, and then the little girl, um, and it's the main maid that says he cannot be married, and yes. he says, continue the ceremony, and it's like, no, I need to see what she's talking about. Yes, and Jane, very, yes, you're correct. Okay, so what I was thinking of is the night before the wedding, <laughs> Jane is you know, a bride about to be wed and she's trying to sleep, which is hard before you get married. And then she has this crazy dream that there is like a woman in her room and the woman is wearing the veil 
Jane's veil, which was, like, hanging in her room, which we then later find out it was not a dream at all. Bertha had escaped during the night, snuck into Jane's room, and had her wedding veil on, and was <laughs> creeping her out, because it's kind of dark in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm worried something's going to come through those doors you have over there. <laughs> but so, it's, like, this really creepy you know, foreshadowing, and then the next day, which I, I wonder how much of Jane being like, hold on, before we go through this, let's investigate, I wonder how much of that has to do with the weird dream, quote-unquote dream, she had the night before. That's a good point, yeah, because I think it was the priest that said, hold on, I need to see what she's talking about, like, if this is true, I cannot really wed you, so she kind of looks at him like, what is going on, and it's really interesting, because I don't think she has any lines on her wedding day, like, she's getting ready, and she's excited, yeah, but after, like, he cannot be married, I think she's, she's in shock, I don't remember correctly, right, but then they take everyone up to this room in the attic, yeah, that's right, they all go marching up yeah, there, everyone is like, <laughs> like, hold on, we want to see how this one ends, <laughs> yeah, so I think that's when, they didn't bring her for evidence, they walked up to her room as evidence, and yes. that's how we all, because for some reason, I was thinking of, like, Bertha barging in, but that was the night before, mm-hmm. um, So, the story with Bertha is, you have to, you're so much clearer on the details than I am. I'm remembering much more than I thought I would. Me too! (laughs) (laughs) So long ago. Right? So, Mr. Rochester and Bertha had been married. Bertha, I believe, is from Barbados. Yes. And so she's like this exotic woman. She's olive tone. She's got a darker complexion, dark hair. Um... But she had gone, as they would say back then, mad. So she had some sort of, like, mental breakdown. And as Mr. Rochester puts it, she she's no longer who she used to be. She's the shell of a woman. She's not the person he fell in love with or the person that he had married. And he takes care of her. But she, I guess she's she's not, like, fit to be seen by other people. He's, like, ashamed of her. And he literally keeps her chained in the attic. Yeah. I think, well, I think he keeps her chained because he does, she does remember from that room quite a bit. <laughs> when she escapes. She, she keeps locked, locked in the room. And she escapes all the time. Especially when the housekeeper is drunk. She, like, escapes. <laughs> I think it was the wedding night the housekeeper was, like, a little tipsy. And that's how Bertha gets out. Yeah. Well, and I think, um... So I think when he made the arrangement, his fam- the family of Bertha was wealthy. Yes. And with the marriage came the money, which I don't think... Was it this one or was it another? I can't remember. But he wasn't very wealthy because his someone else spent most of his fortune. So he married Bertha, and that is a convenience, but also because he was shown how beautiful she was. Yes. When the wedding day came on, I think she already was insane. Okay. I remember. But, or she very quickly after that went insane. That's right. It was an arranged marriage, though. Yeah. Because I remember she said, like, I think someone, at some point he said he was tricked into this marriage. Like, his father had tricked him into getting this marriage to get them Right, that's right. Or something like that. That's right. Um, Because he wasn't ever in love with her to begin with. It was something out of convenience for the money. And he still... He said it because the reason why I said it is I don't think it was public knowledge, um, because otherwise no one would have let him court 
Jane Eyre to begin with. Right, or even the other ladies that he had been yeah. entertaining in the meantime. Um, but it, it sheds a weird light on Rochester. And I remember in high school, people were very polarized about it. Like, mm-hmm. when this came up and our teacher was like, so how do you, like, what what does this do to your opinion of him as a person? And I remember there were girls who were like, he's terrible. Like, he's got a wife. He's using all her money. And he's just, like, probably sleeping around with all of, like, the ditzy women. And now he just wants to marry Jane because she's, like, the marriageable type. Like, I remember so many girls feeling that way. Um, Which is sad. I never thought about that. She's a marriageable one. That makes me sad. Right? But she kind of (laughs) is. But that's why I think the the way the end comes about is so important. Yes. Because he doesn't get away with it mm-hmm. as far as, like, trying to cover up his past and keep Bertha a secret. Which, how the heck was he going to keep her a secret forever with Jane being, like, the mistress of the house? I think that's when he said she had been declining. Oh, was he just, like, waiting for her to die? I'm pretty sure that's what it was. There's no way... He, like, because she was around his age, which would have been 40. Yeah. So And she was, like, sick. She was insane. You don't, I don't, you know, I don't think people live that long if they're right, insane. Right, right. Also, she might have just gotten, she, I, part of me thinks that he was just kind of hoping she would get sick and he'd be like, ah, it's okay, just leave her. Just let her die. But it does, it colors him in a different way. He has, he's a little shady when you consider it. Because she's not dead yet. And he isn't legally free to marry anyone. Yes. Which is that point of morality we were talking about. She then flees. Mm-hmm. She, she kind of, he kind of asks Jane Eyre to stay and marry him anyway. And she... He's, he, it's like this whole scene where he's begging her to be his mistress. Yes, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's what he he says to her. He's like, "It doesn't matter. I love you. Just stay with me," and you know. Um, so he doesn't have the best intentions as far as like what's considered proper during that time, and especially when it comes to Jane's own personal moral code. That's not what she wants for herself. Mm-hmm. I don't think many people would say, "Oh yes, so I I leave." You know, I will not care that you have a wife already. That's actually not like a lot. Okay, there are people. <laughs> but in this kind of special circumstance, I, I, I think it's horrible that you have, like, a wife that's sick, whether you lost her or not. That was, that's the thing that makes me the angriest. <laughs> See, it's, uh, it's funny because, like, there are definitely people who are married and who cheat, and there's yeah. infidelity, and there are women who are willing to be the other woman, and Jane is not. But there is also the element of, like, she didn't know that's what she was getting into. That was a big surprise. He was yeah. trying to trick her. Oh, yeah. Like, that would do so much to my, tr- like, my trust <laughs> in that person. Oh, yeah. So. And I thought when that, when that storyline was presented, I didn't think they would end together. Right. I was like, oh, that's another important character introduced who is no longer part of her storyline. And I was kind of like, where is she? Where is she going to go next, and how is that going to end up? Which brings us to, like, that last portion. Uh, It's almost like the fourth portion of the novel. Normally people split it into thirds, but there is, like, this section of the end after she flees. The family that she goes to when she flees, 
she has no idea what happened. She takes all her things and just kind of goes away. Yes. Um, and she ends up with this family, um, the Rivers. They take her in. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out they're related somehow. They're like distant cousins. Yeah, and she apparently has money, which is something she didn't have before. Yes. Oh, somewhere in between, I forgot about this. Just rewind a little bit. <laughs> somewhere in between, um, Mrs. Reeves dies. Yeah. Um, so she leaves, and the first time seeing her after she sends her away. Yes, yes, that before the marriage. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Reed, who was her aunt dies and Jane makes the decision to go back to the home and like pay her respects and do the whole what her obligation is because mm-hmm. she was dying and then that's when we find out that John Reed the little bully boy was a drunk that wasted all of his money and the two girls are I think married but she feels so glad that that John or whatever his name is is in this position where he is not like he abandoned his family he cares not about it his mom and stuff but it's really interesting because i think that is when we see her really poised to say i forgive you for what you did right and that was right. a big move forward right is she in the end jane is the only one who came back for her and who showed any um compassion, compassion for her when uh, mrs reed was dying and then she went that extra step of forgiveness, which is always more for the person forgiving than the person yeah. who's being forgiven. So it's a big step for Jane. But it, you see, it's an important point for her because it's part of her growth and it's more of that strengthening of that moral character that she has. Which I think plays a big role towards the end. That mm-hmm. is the whole reason why the end is the end. Um, with... Um, the after she leaves and is with St. John, we were talking about it a little bit earlier. She has that fulfillment in her career, but you have the family that loves her. She's fulfilled in her career, but she's not fulfilled by St. John. Yes. Okay. Because she she goes and she lives with them, and the sisters are very kind. She finds uh, friendship and family. Um, and then St. John, or St. John, as they always pronounce it, uh, he, so he kind of tries to, like, court her and stuff, um, but she doesn't have that emotional fulfillment, which is important because she's been growing as this moral character, and she's, she's doing everything that she's supposed to be doing as a woman during this time, so you would think that the obvious next step would be for her to marry this boy when like especially like his whole family has become her family like it makes sense it would be a happy ending yeah marrying your cousins wasn't frowned upon yeah it wasn't frowned upon (laughs) they were distant she gets this inheritance from it it's great everything would work out for her and she would find she would be cared for which is what she had been striving for for through so much of the novel she she needed somebody to care for her and a family and people who respected her and she gets all of that Mm -hmm. but then it goes back to the beginning and she has to find the passion and the fire which is so core to her personality Mm -hmm. and that's why she like you said she doesn't find fulfillment with him and it wouldn't have made her completely happy Mm -hmm. so then we have the end of the novel (laughs) which i will let you talk about especially since you think it's a, a good ending because I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, so you go first. <laughs> so um, she goes back 
to the place where Mr. Rochester lived, and she finds that it's burned down. Um, someone tells her that the night... Which, by the way, is because she says she hears Rochester calling to her. Just, like, oh, randomly. Right. It, it's, it, <laughs> it sounds really dumb. It doesn't make any sense. It's important because throughout the novel, supernatural stuff happens, and she doesn't pay attention to it. Yes. Because, you know, like, all these warnings about Bertha being in the attic, all these ghost sightings, and she is... She just doesn't pay attention. She doesn't want to think about it. She doesn't pay any mind to the supernatural. And then here she is, just randomly one day, she says she hears Rochester calling out to her through the distance, and she just immediately has to follow it, go up, like, get up and go to him. Yeah, part of that growth, you know, she, like you were saying, we see her at this point. She's advanced in everything, morally, um, work-wise, and everything else. And she finally learns, okay, I have to pay attention to what my gut is telling me. Yes. Because she learned her lesson. But yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. Very cheesy, but really useful. Yeah, it's really cheesy, especially like out of context. But then when you think of like the the context of all the supernatural things and how it's important for her to learn to listen to what her intuition is telling her. Yeah. Um, so she goes back. She finds out that the place where, where she used to live has burned down. Um, and that it actually burned down the day of her wedding, or when she was supposed to be married. Right, um, when she left. Yeah, Bertha. <laughs> and the movie is very dramatic. <laughs> I never recommend watching movies just for that. <laughs> just that scene. Um, Bertha gets in a rage because she sees Jane in her white dress. Yeah. And figures, oh, she's getting married to my husband. Right. Um, and just kind of goes into a rage after Jane leaves. Burns on the place, and then in very dramatic action, she throws herself off the building yeah. and into the flames of the castle. Yes. Um, and then Mr. Rochester, well, we, we find Mr. Rochester somewhere in, you know, kind of an empty part of... She's just, like, wandering around yeah, I think he's wandering in, like, around the like, mist. I think he's wandering around, like, a, like part of the burned down... Yeah, it was, like, in the ruins and the mist of England, and it's yeah. very dramatic. But very dramatic. Yes, I think it was around the ruins. Yeah. Um, Which, like, has he been there for months, or yeah, was he just this... going back one day to be dramatic? <laughs> and my, my theory is that he was there, that he had been visiting there, like, every day at least. Mm. Um, or like he was in the hospital for a while and then yeah. he goes back for the first time or yeah. something but it's not <laughs> we're making up context for it because yeah. it's, <laughs> we don't really know why he's there no we don't know we're just imagining um, well we come back and we see Mr. Rochester and in another dramatic reveal we find out he's blind yes he is blind um, because he tried to and he's some... missing a hand oh I forgot about yeah. that oh look about the hand the hands. <laughs> the hands. He's missing a hand and he's blind. And he's blind. And we learn it's because he tried to go back into the fire building trying to save some other people, um, some of his friends. 
that were there for the wedding. And I think at some point he also tried to save Bertha, which is how he ends up being blind. Yes, he does try and save her. He does try and do right by her and not let her die, which was probably his wish all along, but yeah. he tried, I guess. Yeah, so we have this very dramatic, Jane finds him and <laughs> um, tries to comfort him. And essentially, I don't think she verbally says it, but again, that forgiving, like, okay, I forgive you. Which I have a little bit mixed in. I like the ending because it's, you know, the ending that we wanted to have. Yeah. The two of them together. But it's conflicting because she's kind of like, oh, your wife is not here anymore. I don't care that you lied to me. It was such a big thing. Let's get together now. I'll take care of you. Yes. So there are a lot of things that are very convenient in the end. Um, So, but what's important about them is that they all are in Jane's favor. So he has no home. Mm -hmm. And he has no wife, so that's very convenient because that's what they needed in order for them to be together. And Jane all of a sudden has this inheritance. So all of a sudden, she's the one with the power. So now all of a sudden, Jane has all the power and uh, his eyesight being gone, like he has to completely rely on her. She has just learned how to finally see all of the things that she was unable to see before she finally sees him as he really is i wish i knew more about the hand metaphors the whole like sense of touch is very important to him and then he loses half of it so all of a sudden all the odds are in her favor and it gets to be fully her decision whether she wants to forgive him and take him back like you said it's convenient and it's happy because that's how we wanted it to end but it's like she's going to learn to take care of herself without putting herself in a more an amoral situation. Yes. And then she kind of goes back to it. Yeah. Sort of. Like, it, it's kind of annoying because she takes him back. <laughs> well, we kind of want, want, want him to take him back. It's, it's a problem. Well, I think for her it's important because... Again, she needed the fulfillment that only he was going to give her because of their love, and she really does have a passion for him. Mm-hmm. So she has that balance, and each m- moment is a journey for her, and it's a lesson for her. Mm-hmm. Like like we've been talking about, she has to learn different things, and she has the moral code, and at least there's nothing like legally in the way of that moral code anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's not compromising when it comes to that. And she's already learned, like, forgiveness, and she can forgive him. But it's also, like, he, at least physically, is doing penance for what he tried to do. Do you know what I mean? So, like, he he has to lose things in order for them to be on the same playing field again. Yeah. And when you said, you know, you kept thinking about the hand motif, I mean, you know, I don't know if you've heard of love languages before. Yes. Um, I know language. all of mine. <laughs> what? I know mine. Oh yeah, I know mine too. It's, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, I would encourage you to go look. Love languages is a beautiful way to kind of identify how you communicate your love to your friends and sometimes your significant other, which mm-hmm. is what it's used most for. Um, but I think that's part of the reason why he. I think that's that's part of the hand metaphor. Right, like he's got that physical touch. Yeah, he, way of showing love. And it's because he had that woman that he, I think he loved, kind of betrayed him, and then he ended up with this child that he is also, in a way, restricted of showing how much he actually cares for Jane Eyre. Yes. So when he loses half of that, it's kind of symbolizing when he lost 
Jane Eyre to himself. Yes. And it, it, it kind of puts them in a position like she now also has to learn how to give the like the physical love. Like now that's also on her. Yeah, because she's very awkward when he's like doing approaches. Like when he caresses her hand. Hands. Like, <laughs> she's very awkward when it comes yes. to. I think it really, it kind of completes him by yes. giving more of her, which she finally, I, I think towards the end, Kind of, she kind of finds a balance between what's too much and what is just the right amount to give. Right. So she has to be his eyes and hands. Um, except my biggest pet peeve is then at the very, very end, he magically gets his sight back. Yeah. What was that about? I don't know. I don't understand why she like, uh, like why Charlotte Bronte does that. It's like, why is she undoing what she just set up? My theory. Do you have a theory about that? No, go ahead. My theory is that he just had, like, severe retinal damage from, like, how hot it was. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, it might not be severe enough that he might have gotten his eyes that bad. I mean, I can... That penance thing, you're just kind of like, oh, you can do penance for a little bit, and then you're fine. Right, like, I care less about, like, how he gets his sight back, and more of, like, why did, as an author, why did Charlie Bronte decide to do that, other than maybe just, like giving you that perfect happy ending. I mean, you could at least argue that that way Jane is not, like, a servant to him, you know? So she's she's not... Uh, she doesn't end up with a life of, like, having to care for this, like, disabled man. He still doesn't have a hand, but yeah. um, he's fine. that we were talking about earlier, she can still keep her independence. Right. And she can be fulfilled... Uh, like emotionally with him mm-hmm. having to be a servant like you said yeah so maybe that's why but it's it's just it feels like it happens so fast because at that point you're only within like the very last few pages of the novel when they meet up uh, together again she finds out that he's blind and the yeah. next thing you know they're getting married and he has his sight back yeah well do we see it it's not a flash forward like don't they have kids we, i don't think we see the marriage i think we see the well like they're already married I don't know. Yeah, like you get a little, I don't know, what's the end of the book? <laughs> no one really remembers because at that point it's almost like an epilogue. And because the, the real ending is when they meet up again in the ruins and she forgives him and takes him back. I completely forgot he got his side back. Because I, 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 in my head it ended with they meet and they embrace and she kind of forgives him and that's the end. That's when it stops. Right. And that's how my head works. What do most of the film adaptions do? Do you remember? Like, I think how they end. Yeah, because that's the big ending point. Or if, if they do something, they're, like, sitting together and there's children running around. I don't remember. Yeah, like, they're just too. happy in the end. Yeah. But he does get his sight back, which is just random. And Frustrating. <laughs> like, yeah. what, why? But at least, yeah, at least she he's not completely dependent on her because, in a way, that would make her a prisoner again. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think toward, at the end, we do, I think a lot of the, the times when I've gotten the... When I've read the coming of age stories, yes, there is a very clear, like I don't know, like I don't know how to put it, but there's still a very clear part of the main character that is missing that's not fully yet developed. Mm-hmm. But I get the feeling with Jane Eyre that she is fully well developed at like I don't know, twenty five, thirty years old. Yeah, I'm jealous. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like she has much more to grow after that. Right. You know what I mean. Right. Because, I mean, she still has so much life ahead of her, 
I can only imagine that she just has children and is happy and she's going to be like the perfect mom because she was a governess and whatever. And, but it does feel like her journey is very complete. But it, it, like you don't hate her for that because her journey up until that point had been so riddled with uh, trauma and like just depressing tales and drama and like she went through so much by the time she was 25 yeah. that like it's cool if she just has a normal life after that because she never did not even as a child mm-hmm. and I, I mean the first, you know how in school they always drew you that like you have the rise and act like the the, what's it the like rising action and the climax of the yeah and, and you have that, like, very beginning. It's a very flat line, and then it's just, like, going up. Yeah, you have, like, the expose. And that then, one, yeah. thank you. So you have the expose, and then yes. it climbs up. I feel almost that we have three climax. We start with one. Yes. With her being a child, kind of goes down. And then we have that expose all throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. And then towards the very end, we have another one. And then when she leaves, we have another one when they meet up again. You almost have one, um, you because you could argue that the death of Helen was also a big climax. So you have one for like each part of the book. Um, I wonder if that was sold in three different books. Or I don't think just so. One. I don't think so. I think it was just one because it was supposed to be like a full life. Mm. Um, but I love that structure because you're right. It's almost like it like it happens in intervals, like ups and downs. But that's life you know um most people's lives don't follow one story arc we have story arcs over the years and we're constantly going through things and learning new things so i mean for all we know there was something else that jane had to learn like maybe her as a mother is really difficult for her because she didn't have that kind of role model you know there there's probably something who knows it's just, to me, it always felt like a very nice bow-wrapped ending. In a good way or a bad way? In the way that I was happy she was done suffering. Okay. So, what do you think of Jane Eyre, like, the story as a fairy tale? Like, would you say it fits in with that? Because of how much how many supernatural themes we have, I would consider that much more of a fairy tale. Because I've always felt that way about Jane Eyre. Especially if you think about, like, original fairy tales, where it's like you've got the, like, the Grimm's brother version, where there's, like, some weird stuff going on. Mm -hmm. But then in the end, you get that perfect happy ending. Yeah. And you have that, um... I mean... Yeah, I I never thought about it until you said it, but I can see how that can be a fairy tale. Like... They lived happily ever after, and that's good because we and we want her to be just like you said. There's been so much trauma in all of her life that we really do want her to just be happy. Yeah, like for once, just be happy. You've you've earned it. Earned it. Yeah. Yeah. I. I mean, I liked it. I liked it when I first read it. I was a lot more critical the second time around, and with the movies, I just didn't enjoy it. It's such a good. I think I might have to read it maybe when I'm 25, when mm-hmm. I'm closer to the age when she's, like, getting married and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, because we're the same age. You got married a year ago. Yes. We were fairly young. I'm not engaged at this point <laughs> in time. So, I, you know, like, the perspective, we're, we're looking at it from the marriage point. Yeah. The single point. Um, 
I wonder what my dream will be when I'm 25 and hopefully married. <laughs> or not getting there. Getting there, maybe. Hopefully, because um, she does feel like she has her whole life figured out. Yeah, but it in as far as like society standards goes, it took her a while to get there. Yeah, because twenty five is pretty old for a woman during that time. Yeah, um, like most people would be like married with children already, and she went and did her own thing for a while. Mm-hmm. So it makes me feel a little bit better that like I don't need to have like a brood of children right now. Yeah, please. When you do have them. <laughs> Please let me know. <laughs> no, I'll keep them hidden secrets <laughs> from you. I'll let me just make a bunch of photos of them if I'm going to be so cute. <laughs> of course you'll know. Have such cute but what will they look like? No pressure. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you look at the two of us and it's like, what will our kids look like? <laughs> I think it's funny because my grandma had, she is very much like my complexion, like yeah. darker and um, brown hair. She had a brother was blonde with blue eyes and a brother was brunette with Green eyes. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you'll have <laughs> kids of all colors and things. Well, that's the thing, and and that's how it is with my parents too. Because my parents look totally different, and like at, at a glance, all of me and my siblings we look like Dequillas. But when you look at each of us, like we are so different. Like some of us have freckles, some of us have very Asian hair, some of us have like really coarse curly hair. Yeah. Um. Like there are so many different genes in the which, pool. Yeah, which is all irrelevant to Jane, Jane Eyre. Eyre. But, <laughs> <laughs> but people want to know all of this, don't yes, they? Of course. <laughs> no, but I, I think I think as time goes on, I think this is a novel that younger women for sure can read and relate to because we're in that very angsty stage of life where it's like nobody likes me yeah who am i and it's finding yourself and kind of getting hope that it will get better and now talking about it more because i haven't read it since i was like 19 Mm -hmm. um and having me now talking about it with you and remembering everything i'm like okay there's a lesson to be learned as well when you're older. Right. Because we, I mean, think about it. We started off this podcast saying it was so great reading this book when we were in high school. <laughs> and now we're at the end of it going, wow, this book is so great to learn or read in your 20s. Yeah. So I think essentially the point is this is a great book. It's a great book, yeah. I think that more women should read it for sure. And men. And men. I don't know. I don't have a male perspective on it. I don't know a single man who's read this book. Maybe more men should read it so they understand the woman's perspective. If you're re- if you're listening, <laughs> hey men, don't keep your wife locked up in your attic. That's lesson good... learned. <laughs> <laughs> it might slow things down when you're trying to get married. Yeah, and if your wife is wanting to read this book, you join her and impress her with how much you already know about the novel. Right, just listen to this first, and then you can <laughs> pretend you read it. <laughs> Very cultured. We're doing everyone a service by this podcast because now people don't have to read anymore. No, that's not what we're trying to no, do. <laughs> you leave them with enough gaps in there that when they go read it, they're like, okay. Right. Oh, okay. So, what do we want to hear from the listeners? I want to know what are your opinions on the Red Room? What are your interpretations? What are your interpretations on like the whole hand thing? Because there's a lot of hand, handsy things going on and he loses one at the end. I want to know if you think it's a good idea for him to get his sight back or not at the end. And then also just how you feel about Jane as a main character, whether you feel like she's too 
blank or if you feel like she has a good because it's not a normal arc like you said it's up and down and you know tell us what you think about her whether you relate to her or not so I think that's pretty much it I mean thanks again Daphne for being on the show I it was so much fun it was great doing it in person too I don't normally get to have that energy yeah I, I loved it thank you for having me um you know I it's more than anything, it was spending time with you because I consider we're best friends in high school. Yeah. And you went away for college, and we kind of lost. We did. Track. We kind of like, and we like always try to reconnect. It's always hard, it's and now I live hard. out of state. Yeah. So it was really sweet having you, and really being able to help you along with your passion. I appreciate it a lot. (laughs) You've been, like, one of my number one fans, and it helps a lot. And I am reading the book you sent me, so we're going to do that one as well, of course. Um, It's one of my favorite books. I hope you really like it. When I read it, I was a creative writing minor at school, Mm -hmm. and so we had to read, like, three or four books. But this one was by far one of my favorites. It's originally in Spanish. So when you want to review that one, you let me know. Yes. I'll drive down to see you. <laughs> yeah. And I will bring the drinks. You'll come and see me. You'll bring drinks. We'll do a podcast. And then uh, we'll do a photo shoot. Yes. <laughs> kids are no kids. I already told Randy, I was like, when when we do have kids, Daphne is going to do our pregnancy announcement photos. Like, I've already decided because I've been dying for you to do photos for us. Let's do it. All right. Well, uh, do you want to let them know where they can find you on social media? Um, I don't really have. Oh, you can you can find me um, Daph Delgado Photography on Facebook. Um, I don't really do much with my Instagram because I've kind of taken a hiatus. I'm working full time as uh, so. Hopefully, in the next couple of years, that builds up. But builds up again. You can always see me in Leanna's comments. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> she is always there. I love it. Uh, as always, you can reach us at Top Shelf Lit Pod. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, Facebook is the biggest one by far, but if you guys want to go follow the Instagram right now, that one's starting to blow up and I would love to have some support over there. Once again, like commenting really helps us out. If you just leave us your thoughts, answer some of those questions we had, any feedback, any suggestions for further shows, more books to read. I love hearing from you guys and as always enjoy the rest of your week. 